coming up on the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast. Psychedelics have shown to increase the overall like mind-body connection, the awareness of subtler and subtler emotional states. There's been some correlation with psilocybin increasing like effective empathy and all these other things. And so for a lot of individuals, at least who come through our space, they've reported that, you know, that they're suddenly coming into an awareness of like, oh, wow, like I realized that person who like left a food in my fridge I normally would be like mentally thankful, but that day I felt like physically grateful that they left mm. food. And I was like, oh, that's the experience of gratitude. Like that's the felt experience of that emotional state. And so there's a lot of things that I'm still unpacking with my own story, other people as well of, could it be that this sort of like thin skinned nature of our hypersensitivity predisposes us to trauma that can then lead to kind of like a shuddering of like those feelings? Or like, where does it begin? Like chicken or the egg kind of thing. And so I found in my own case, like by resolving trauma and becoming okay with like feeling these feeling states through psychedelic assistance, through MDMA or LSD or psilocybin, that it then becomes easier to reaccess those points and like remember how I got to that feeling state and like give myself permission to feel however I might feel. Welcome to the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast, a weekly conversation series with leaders in psychedelic culture, designed for therapists, healers, retreat leaders, and passionate enthusiasts, presented by Maya and hosted by me, Eamon Armstrong. Welcome back to the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast. I'm your host, Eamon Armstrong. Can psychedelics be considered a neurological contact lens for those on the autism spectrum? Today's guests, Aaron Paul Orsini and Justine Lee, are determined to find out, and they are sharing their findings with the world. On the podcast, we discuss how experimenting with LSD helped Aaron understand and appreciate his autism as a kind of altered state and led to his book, Autism on Acid. We cover seven key takeaways for using psychedelics to work with autistic populations. Justine shares how connectivity works in neurodiverse brains. Finally, we talk about the weekly gathering, the autistic psychedelic community, and how psychedelic therapists can get involved. Aaron and Justine are co-founders of the Autistic Psychedelic Community, which is a peer support group for neurodivergent individuals interested in discussing psychedelics. Aaron is the author of Autism on Acid, How LSD Helped Me Understand, Navigate, Alter, and Appreciate My Autistic Perceptions, and is currently editing his second book, a neurodiversity-minded anthology of psychedelic essays that is now available for pre-order. And you can find that at www.autisticpsychedelic.com. Justine is a graduate student in pharmacology at the University of California, Irvine. She is investigating the therapeutic potential of psychedelic compounds with respect to autism and other neurological conditions. And now, please enjoy this fascinating conversation with Aaron, Paul Orsini, and Justine Lee. Welcome to the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast. I have been looking forward to this conversation for a long time, and I have brought up this topic with different people in my community and different people who listen to this podcast. And it's been across the board, people are fascinated with this idea of meeting ASD with LSD. Exploring autism through psychedelics is something that 
really our, our audience is fascinated to learn about. And today I'm honored to have two burgeoning experts on the topic. So I just want to first of all thank you so much for giving your time and for coming on the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast today. Welcome. Thanks for having us. We yeah, appreciate it. Thank you it. so much for having us. And so just to get started, I have read your book, Aaron, which is called Autism on Acid. And I'd like to just give you a moment to kind of introduce yourself and that book. And I'd also like to know how you and Justine connected in the work you're doing now. Yeah, absolutely. I'm happy to talk about this. And and I'll give it like the condensed version in the soon to be published like second book that we're putting out. There's a lot more context kind of explaining the rationale for how this has grown and why we feel it's important and all this. But to kind of time travel back, you know, I had my uh, first significant psychedelic experience at the age of 27. I'm currently 33 years old now. But that happens. And at the time, it really uh, upturned my world as far as certain understandings I had. It rescued me from a certain kind of depressive or anxious place and brought me into a place of connection. And we'll talk, I'm sure, in great detail about some of the specifics about it. But the short version is that it really awakened within me like a, a deep sense of interoceptive uh, awareness. And that's just a term for like feeling internal body states. And that sort of translates also to becoming like aware of the bodily states of other beings and, and this. And that's not a universal autistic characteristic. That's just how it presented in my case. And so psychedelics really did a great service to connecting me to other individuals, um, which was like paramount to making like a pivot in my sort of isolated kind of way of life. So that all happened again about six or almost seven years ago now. And I sat with that for a while. I At that time, there wasn't nearly the abundance of like mainstream support or enthusiasm about a lot of these things. I went to like small little peer groups, a couple small like psychedelic society meetings. But I was still like, I didn't like talking about it, even though it was like really important because it was just like, I didn't know what life would be like if I was like, hi, I'm autistic, which is already like stigmatized or like, hi, I have used schedule one drugs to help me better my life, which is also stigmatized. So it's just a lot to just like throw at people. So I sat with that story for a long time, brought a few copies to a conference at one point to be like, maybe someone's interested in this. And after I left that conference, no one really contacted me from all of like the little printed out books that I handed out. So I was just kind of like, well, that was a good idea, but maybe I should just drop that. Eventually, someone ended up emailing me out of the blue, like uh, almost a year after that conference. And they were like, hey, do you want to present about this? And I was like, uh, I could. And so they gave me like 75 minutes to talk about this thing. And I was like, I could have talked for like 25 hours about it, but um, and at that same night, that was when I made like the book published, uh, like on Amazon and, and then slowly over time, I started to get like emails, messages, like first, like once in every few weeks, every few days. Now I get like, you know, a couple on a given day, just because there's nothing else really on the internet about this exact intersection. And I, I talk about it a lot in terms of it being like, you know, there, there's a, a loose estimate. If you like Google it, it'll say like one in 54 persons estimated to be on the autism spectrum. So that's already like a fraction of a population, the odds of them encountering controlled substances, and then the further odds of them speaking about that publicly, there's just massive barriers around it. So I, what I learned definitely, because now I've heard from hundreds of people going on, like soon to be thousands of people who have reached out to me to be like, thanks for sharing that. That happened to me too. But like, and so from all of that, I was like, wait, like, okay, first of all, the things that started to come through were 
my experience wasn't unique. It had happened in other individuals as far as those particular kind of breakthroughs. And what was also showing through was that some other like totally not correlative things seem to be happening with other individuals as well. And so it started to be that, and we can get into this a little, little bit later too, but we started to see that like it was a matter of, you know, if we view autism through this lens of like autism is like an altered state experience already. And if you enter an altered state, you're going to be like, oh, weird. I was in an altered state before this altered state. And then you can suddenly contextualize one or the other. And and so, you know, some people, like, for example, we'd have individuals who would write would be like, I had a psychedelic experience and then I came into an awareness that I might be autistic because of that experience. They were like, wait, I realized like my way of seeing was very particular and I started to look into it more and then I got diagnosed and like, so that's a weird outcome. And then like in the reverse side, like in my case, like I better understood my diagnosis by being like, oh, so like that's what guides my pattern of behavior. It's because like, I'm not prioritizing that particular kind of sensory input, but I can. It's just like my filter is like, seems to be like stuck in one mode or something. But psychedelics seem to like kind of make that filter like transferable, like uh, shifting it from kind of like stuck in like a manual camera focus into being more of like a variable lens. And so I started to work with psychedelics in my own little small space the, over the course of like just hundreds of days of experimenting with like doses really small and doses like small, medium, all these things. And then I developed what felt like a pretty comfortable way of applying it in my own life. And then it felt okay to talk about because I was like, well, you know, the way in which I was utilizing the substance was like fairly safe in terms of like risk and what's known as far as like a safety panel look at like something like LSD, like it's a fairly like low neurotoxicity kind of substance. And so I started to kind of see the world through this lens and explore it, put the book out. And again, it didn't, it wasn't until maybe six months into the publish that I started to really get a sense that a lot of people might have an interest in this. So in the spring around March, Justine had actually contacted me through just a comment inside of our Google Doc that I had published the book as. And uh, I was like, hey, what are you doing? And she was like, oh, I'm thinking about maybe looking into this like as like a research kind of thing. And I was like, oh, cool. I'm already doing that. Let's maybe continue doing that. And then we just started having these weekly meetings on Sundays and we've been having them ever since. We're on like almost like our 40 something meeting. And it's just like open space to bring people in to talk about it more. It's like this open science thing. And it's really cool to me because on one hand, like psychedelics could use like far more representation, not only in terms of like the positive outcomes, but like we also have people who are like have very real cautionary stories as well, which I think is just as important. But also giving a voice to these like underrepresented versions of autism because we all have just like such a cartoon version of it. And it's really challenged my view because even from my first book, parts of the ways that I assumed autism to present for myself are just simply not the case in other individuals who still receive the same diagnosis. So it's just like that spectrum component makes it such that like at a certain level, like the umbrella is so broad that it's uh, it's a lot to take in, but that's a really long-winded intro to everything. But that's how I met Justine, which Justine is here. We should give her some space to talk. So I'm going to take pause. Thank you so much, Aaron. And that I, I didn't, that didn't feel long-winded. It felt like there was a lot to say in a short period of time, and I feel like you did a wonderful job. And we're just setting the table now, so we'll get to dive deeply into all of these subjects. And, and so, Justine, I'm curious about the work you're doing at Irvine and how you 
got interested in this topic to begin with and what brought you to this work, this intersection of autism and psychedelics? Sure. Um, so I'm currently a grad student um, studying pharmacology at UC Irvine. I, I had just recently graduated with a bachelor's in neurobiology. I had intentions of pursuing maybe Alzheimer's research or Parkinson's or some sort of neurodegenerative disease. And I was coming home from an interview at Yale. And so things didn't work out the way that I thought they were supposed to work out at the time. And I was very disappointed. But just the the invitation, the offer to interview there alone was enough to kind of light a fire in my belly, I guess, to figure out like how to do better next time, how to improve my application, this and that. And the thought just occurred to me to follow my passion and follow something that I loved. And I, as soon as I started thinking about psychedelics. I don't know, I could study it forever. In the autistic community, there's a thing called like special interests, like psychedelics. I could spend hours just sitting there, like reading, studying about it. And I had the opportunity to start working with the autistic population. But I realized that even as a someone with a neurobiology degree, I didn't know that much about it. I didn't know anything at all, really, other than what I was taught in school. And what I was taught was just basically from age two to age 10. And that was it. And I didn't even realize at the time, but it just maybe because I was so focused on what was going to be on the exam. Like, it didn't occur to me, like, what happens when people grow up? Like, what, like, how does this progress? How does this develop? And so, um, Funny enough, as I was doing this Google search, my understanding of psychedelics and then what I was starting to learn about autism kind of melded together. And I was like, maybe there's something there. And because Aaron is like the only thing on the internet about it, other than like studies from the 60s, as, as soon as I did a Google search, like he, I came across his book, I came across his video from the Aware Project, and I was like, so there is maybe there is something. So, and then I reached out to him and the rest is kind of history. So yeah, as far as um, the stuff that I'm doing right now regarding the research specifically, I can't really go too much in depth yet because it's all in like the beginning stages, but we are looking to examine what might be going on there regarding LSD and autism. Well, it's really exciting that the two of you found each other, and I can see a pretty profound collaboration unfolding over the coming years with the work that you're both doing. So for our audience, I think that the best place to start would be to talk a bit about autism. Because Justine, as you pointed out, um, there's not really a lot of real understanding around what autism is. And we've seen a lot more awareness of autism. I think of this, the new Sesame Street character, for example. In opening up a conversation about neurodivergence, I think that the fact that Sesame Street has an autistic character has been a great step forward. But for the most part, most people don't, including myself, don't really understand that much about what autism is or what the experience of autism might be like. So I think that that might be a great place for us to start today. 
So Aaron, you, you brought up that autism can present in different ways for different people and that you have your own experience of it. But I'm curious, what is your experience of autism and what is your understanding of how autism actually manifests in someone's psyche? Yeah, so I think one of the things I like to do is kind of give people the long the long version option if they want. And one thing I would oh, strongly recommend to anyone who's interested in this subject, either for themselves or if they're a caretaker or anything, um, would be to check out uh, Steve Silberman's book, Neurotribes, where he goes into a really long historical contextualization of how this diagnosis came about, things about like how and when the Asperger's diagnosis was dropped and like what's the implications of that and like where did that come from historically because some of these things take root in kind of unexpected places almost things that sound almost like eugenics or uh, other kinds of like kind of really kind of controversial roots of like early psychology and so flash forward to today and I struggle with this because it's a question I'm asked often and I usually also go into like a very long-winded like I can tell you what autism might seem like to some and I think it's easier for me to kind of contextualize like how this diagnosis kind of comes about to begin with and in a majorative sense we're at a point where it's mainly coming through through a questionnaire model through a diagnostic test and most of those individuals are going into that diagnostic test with a fair degree of like self-study I think it's really rare that I hear from someone that's like, I was just at my doctor just because. And then all of a sudden they're like, you're autistic. They're usually working through something. And it tends to also be, again, like not in an always sense, but like I think that's part of my autistic presentation is this very like detail oriented kind of like specificity of kind of really working out the sort of like logic behind what are my choices and behaviors and patterns and all these things. So, you know, going into like a questionnaire you know, you're kind of bringing a sort of self-knowledge into it and the questionnaires kind of meeting it there. And so there's been a lot specifically with like uh, maybe autistics who might identify as like female or that there's certain kinds of characteristics that are just culturally normative in some other capacity or like, you know, because essentially if someone is arriving to a place where they're being diagnosed with a neurodivergent condition, this is by no means like an official definition, but like my own kind of framework for it is like, that means that person didn't kind of fit through the doorway of civilized expectation, whether that's in school, workplace, social connection, like some part of the like the life machine that they're inhabiting is breaking down somewhere along the way. And so as we become aware of what those like potential roots may be, that's what like kind of leads to these diagnoses. And for me and a lot of other individuals I've heard from being diagnosed is an incredibly helpful and like an illuminating experience to just be like, oh, that explains that. Now I can work with a new understanding. But in terms of how it presents, it's just, again, you know, a lot of my first book was hinging on this idea that I had this sort of poor interoception. And that's not a universal trait. I've talked to other autistics who are like, I feel everything so strongly all the time. Like, I don't relate to your experience of autism at all. That might just be like another component. So I think the way I kind of comfortably couch all of this, and this is one of like 50 other ways I could say it, but is to sort of refer to it as like a sensory processing issue. And so like, for example, myself, like I have a high intense sense sensitivity to sound. And so put me in like a very busy, huge open space and I might seem like I'm introverted, but actually I'm being bombarded with sensory information. And so when we start to think about like when you answer a question that's reduced down to like, do you enjoy going to parties? It's like, 
I don't know how to answer that question. It's like, is the party loud? Is it a silent party? <laughs> like I said, like there's so many layers. And so when we try to reduce anything down to a box, it's going to like some information is going to be lost. But that sensory component based on, you know, having hundreds of conversations with many other autistics, you know, I think it really helps to listen to the individuals themselves and how it's impacting them. I think it, and as Justine pointed out too, there's there's a contrast to what's being taught about these conditions versus how they're manifesting in individuals and like what their accommodations actually look like versus what kind of targets we might be pushing these individuals towards. Like there's a concept in autism referred to as masking where individuals kind of learn how to kind of like camouflage their challenge or just kind of like get through a social situation or otherwise just through kind of like memorized behavior patterns. But some people who go through these kind of psychedelic changes will then be like, oh, I noticed when I was pretending to do something, I, I could, they could kind of like separate that out and go through a process where they're almost like deconditioning in order to get back in touch with like their authentic bodily needs, which can be sometimes like coerced out of us. Like for myself, I was discouraged from like moving about during classroom time. But like now when I'm working, I'm like standing up, sitting down, moving, like I'm constantly moving because that like fuels my energy. But like in another context, like I'm seen as disorderly in that setting. And so I had to like really work to push towards creating like a lifestyle, a circumstance, a career path that could accommodate all of these particular kind of sensitivity needs. And then on the flip side, those are also like strengths for me as well. Like I do like audio mixing or music composition and like in that setting, like having this heightened sense is like wonderful. So it's all like context. And like, so a large part of what we do with this group is kind of give people the space to discover their gifts, their talents. And also when neurodiverse people tend to get together, they tend to, I use the metaphor sometimes of like a waitress knows how to treat another waitress because they're used to like all the other nonsense they have to deal with. And I think we're really attuned to being able to like accommodate each other because we're like, oh, you need a few extra seconds to like gather your thoughts. That's fine. You prefer to just chat in the chat instead of using like vo like vocalizations. That's fine. Like whatever people need, we just try to provide it. And that's just not the common experience for a lot of people in most cultures anywhere so we're trying to like really create that first and foremost for ourselves and then kind of show other people what that looks like in motion because i'm still learning what that looks like in motion justine do you identify as neurodivergent in any way i am not sure okay. <laughs> ever since um i've kind of delved into this psychedelic space i've come across a number of lovely individuals who have opened my eyes to new terms like empath and highly gifted and all these other things but i i can say for sure that i do appreciate these spaces communicating in these spaces really because the conversing within the neurodiverse community with neurodivergent persons, they seem to be very particular and very precise about their, their language and their vocabulary, their word choice. And me as a scientist, like I love that, um, especially in today's climate of like alternative facts and whatnot, but it kind of utilizes a part of the brain, so to speak, that I lean heavily on. And I don't know if it's because I have a certain predisposition or if I have a certain neurotype, but I do understand and I relate very heavily to people in the neurodiverse community. 
Well, and I, I think that a lot of the folks who find themselves drawn to psychedelic therapy as healers are people who are similar to yourself, Justine, who would answer that question. Well, actually, I don't know how I would necessarily mm-hmm. identify, but you know, I, I do feel this empathy. I and and to be in these environments is really is really valuable. And and I'm curious in this moment if we could just touch on for the psychedelic therapist listening to this conversation now, um, who will be working with individuals of all different kinds of neurodiverse backgrounds. Do you have any advice for people who are showing up as psychedelic healers that you've learned from spending a lot of time with people who didn't fit through that door. If you could give a quick crash course for the psychedelic therapist to be mindful of neurodiversity in their practice, what are some of the key points that you would want them to be aware of, or maybe some resources for them to look into? A lot of what I feel would be a successful approach is informed by my own approaches. Some people will sometimes stop to like congratulate me on what I've done. And sometimes I'm like, that's like saying like, good job climbing out of a hole, (laughs) like that you had to climb out of. Like I had to, I had to figure out my way out of the thing. And so these methods were sort of developed around that. And so we have like a, a presentation deck that we've kind of like shopped around when we go talk at like psychedelic societies or other groups. And we came up with like what feels kind of like seven kind of like essential takeaways. And I think, you know, I could I could roll through them in probably like five-ish minutes and we'll probably miss a lot of like subtle points. But I think these really hit home on what we're really kind of zeroing in on. So if that's okay by you, I'd be happy just to kind of like roll through like those kind of like seven points. Yeah, I, w- I would love that. And is that deck available? Could that be something that we could link in the show notes as well? Um, yeah, I believe so. Well, we can host it like through our, our website and we could, we could link out to that. Yeah. Cause it also has some really good quotes from individuals and, and things like that. So yeah, that should be fine. Awesome. Yeah. Well, let, let's talk about it now and we'll put that in the show notes so people can, can go a bit deeper as well. Yeah, for sure. So I'll just kind of stick at the headline level a bit. And so the, the first, these are kind of structured in terms of what we feel is like simultaneously the most important and what we feel is also like the most broadly relatable based on, again, this is still working with a beginning sample of a few hundred people who have written me, mainly inspired because of my story. So there's going to be obvious like redundancy and like positivity bias and all these other things. But the first most important thing that we took away was that we wanted to emphasize to anyone listening that we're, we're not professing that we are curing autism, that we see autism as a neurotype. And so a lot of this work can also be seen through a similar lens of like to reframe autism spectrum as potentially a disorder, but a disorder in certain contexts. And so like a lot of the time, like for myself, my original title for my first book was how LSD helped me bridge this neurodiverse slash neurotypical divide as though this sort of made me more normal. Uh, I've since revised that belief structure because I saw it as like detrimental to my like self-worth and there's no real validity to that sort of sentiment, but it speaks to the cultural conditioning that's rooted in a lot of neurodiverse individuals, which is like you haven't fit through the door, fit through the door. But I've also met other neurodivergent individuals who are like, I didn't really care about that door. I went to this other door and like, I became like a CEO because like I knew how to do a bunch of stuff. And like, so there's that component too of just like, I think a lot of depression and anxiety that I've seen from individuals coming through is just a lack of like cultural resources supporting these individuals and like a narrative that's constantly spun that like, there is only one optimal way of life. Like you must be the life of the party to be happy. You must be these other things. 
and giving people the space just to like enjoy. And that's why I recommended Neurotribes as well. Is like after I read that book, it was the first time I was like, oh wait, if I just want to like sit and read a book, like that's fine. Like I don't have to feel bad that I have like preferences of like how I spend my time or what I like allocate myself to. So more than anything, it's like no one's trying to like treat the core deficits of, of autism with psychedelics. Mostly what we're working with is individuals who are coming into an awareness of what their predisposition looks like. So that's the main thing. So the second most like prevalent thing that we see is rooted around what's called interoceptive processing. I mentioned it a few times and and psychedelics have shown to increase like the overall like mind body connection, the awareness of subtler and subtler like emotional states. There's been some correlation with psilocybin increasing like effective empathy and all these other things. And so for a lot of individuals, at least who come through our space, they've reported that, you know, that they're suddenly coming into an awareness of like, oh, wow, like I realized that person who like left a food in my fridge, I normally would be like mentally thankful. But that day I felt like physically grateful that they left mm. food. And I was like, oh, that's the experience of gratitude. Like that's the felt experience of that emotional state. And so there's a lot of things that I'm still unpacking with my own story, other people as well of could it be that this sort of like thin skinned nature of our hypersensitivity predisposes us to trauma that can then lead to kind of like a shuddering of like those feelings or like, where does it begin? Like chicken or the egg kind of thing. And so I've found in my own case, like by resolving trauma and becoming okay with like feeling these feeling states through psychedelic assistance, through MDMA or LSD or psilocybin, that it then becomes easier to reaccess those points and like remember how I got to that feeling state and like give myself permission to feel however I might feel. Yeah, I just want to flag that um, that's one of the things that I really enjoyed in your book. And we'll come back to this when we talk about integration. You used in the book, you used an analogy of the cochlear implant. My grandmother actually had a cochlear implant, but it didn't work because she'd been deaf since she was 11. So she had to learn how to hear again. And so mm -hmm. um, this process of working through trauma that maybe you weren't sensing through your body over many years, that I think is something that's really important for psychedelic therapists to be aware of. Now, everybody's situation is different, but I think you do a really masterful job in your book in talking about, you know, training up your interoceptivity also required you to then feel and work through trauma. And that's where a lot of the, not just the psychedelics, but the therapy itself going along with it is so incredibly important. So I just wanted to flag that. And as a, a pitch for the book, if, you, if you've gotten this far that you're listening to this podcast, I definitely recommend the book as well, because it goes quite deep on, on this particular subject. I appreciate those kind words. And and yeah, I mean, again, this is the net result of the last like seven years of my like every day I'm like waking up to the same like Google Scholar inbox alerts of what study or this or that. Like I'm trying to make as much sense of it as I can. And the once we stepped into like the getting other anecdotal kind of insights, it just really started to shape a lot of this. So there's like seven of these total. The third of these talking points was that we touched on it a bit, but the idea that psychedelics can provide a reappraisal of this sort of default way of seeing. And, you know, I think we've talked about it a number of different ways. But again, that idea that like, oh, I realized how I saw because of psychedelics showing me another way of seeing. And then it's like, oh, now even when I'm not on psychedelics, I have a certain like awareness of what's amplified for me or what's maybe like quieted for me. And that makes it easier. I think a classic example of this was one individual mentioned similarly that like they went out to a bar after a psychedelic experience and they were like, 
still pretty well attuned to like how their body was feeling. And they were like, there's so much noise here. And then they were like, oh, I don't like going to bars. <laughs> and like part of, they realized part of like their alcohol consumption was driven by this sort of wanting to dampen down some of that sensory input as well. And so like, those are kinds of examples of like unexpected aha moments for people. You know, if you can feel how you feel, you can better steer your ship. And I think over time, especially for adults, I mean, some of these people are coming through, they're diagnosed at 40 or they had their first psychedelic after 40. Like they're unpacking like a lifetime of patterns that become so subconscious that as soon as you become aware, then you're like, oh, I can make a change kind of thing. And so that informs the fourth takeaway, which is that psychedelics might have the potential to decrease the influence of priors or like prior conditioning. Uh, and therefore enable a sort of unmasking for autistics, which is to say like a reconnection with like their authentic sort of way of being, way of reacting to the world. And, you know, that can, that just has a, an unquantifiable benefit when it feels like someone is in more harmony with their physical body, with their genuine like interest reactions, like affections, whatever it is, those are like inherently therapeutic. And similarly, takeaway five was that psychedelics can engender connectedness in broad general populations, but with autistics especially, like autism is rooted in the notion of sort of like the isolated self as an experience. And so if you're blurring that boundary and making that connection, that's going to be huge uh, for the individual as well. And the notion also for takeaway six is that these psychedelic experiences, even ones that are perceivably recreational, are still nonetheless therapeutic. We're talking about individuals sometimes who like didn't give themselves permission to have fun anymore or like didn't believe that there was fun to be had and so like having a social experience with other persons can be immensely therapeutic for someone and similarly if we're speaking specifically to therapists and that like a lot of this psychedelic therapy is going on in like a talk therapy environment I would be more inclined to explore the avenue of what I was doing, which I refer to as more of like immersion kind of exploration where I was like in social spaces on substances because that's where the social learning happens. That's where I could be like, oh, I noticed myself respond in a way I don't normally notice myself respond. Oh, I have choices. Oh, I'm going to make this choice. Oh, that's how it feels to choose that. Like it, to me, like it's everything that has to do with like, a lot of autistic approaches in autistic care rather are oriented around kind of like inducing compliance or like, please follow this. If this happens, do that. But if you can reassign that locus of control to the individual to be like, how do you feel? What do you want to do? Like, if are you motivated to say thank you rather than just like respond thank you to this action? Like, are you finding that internal motivation? And if that's the case, then that's again, like that's reassigning independence and autonomy for an individual, which is like, that, that to me, like that's everything that's like awakened the rest of my life being possible. And the last takeaway of the seven was that as of now, having simply an autistic diagnosis is not uh, seen as a, a contraindication for psychedelic use. And so I think the most likely thing that we'll see in the years ahead is people who are perhaps diagnosed with autism who are seeking more like uh, anxiety or depression services going to like these soon to be established places like in Oregon or such and having these sort of like peripheral effects come about maybe without even necessarily that being like the core intention but nonetheless like i think we're going to see more people comfortably speaking about this if they haven't broken any laws or things like that so that's like the 
seven essential things and that's a long block of block of talking but yeah we'll happily put the slides up because there's a lot of really excellent quotes that are coming straight out of this next autistic psychedelic book that we're putting out and they really tell a much better kind of complete story than i could and that's that's kind of the whole point of the whole book it's there's just so many perspectives on what it's like to be autistic and obviously so many different ways that a psychedelic experience can manifest for any given person, let alone like a specific kind of subpopulation. So that's what we're exploring. Well, I'm, I'm grateful for you sharing all of that. And I just want to um, double click on immersion therapy. There's a note that you have from the book that I feel like would be important to share for the audience now, particularly for people who might be wanting to try some of what you've done, which is you write once again, and this is about immersion therapy. Um, once again, I feel compelled to voice this approach is not recommended for anyone new to this type of experience. So I just, you know, if you're listening at home, the immersion therapy is something... I, it, it sounds like an incredibly efficacious approach, but as you say here, guides matter, therapists and support matters, because there are a number of seemingly bizarre peripheral phenomena and sensations that may arise during the experience, which means there's likewise a number of potentially challenging outcomes that require extensive planning and risk mitigation approaches. And your work in this space with yourself took place over a long period of time and experimentation. And so I, I think that, you know, just in case someone at home is listening and like, okay, this is this is an answer. I'm gonna I'm gonna find some some LSD and I'm gonna go, you know, put myself in these situations. I think that there's, you know, you say here guides matter, and I think with a psychedelic experience, that's so much the case. And having someone who knows what you're planning to do, who you've talked about, who can who can give you some support about what might happen, potentially coach and guide. And, you know, likewise, there may be an opening as the investigation and knowledge into these different protocols come into play. There may be an opening for psychedelic guides and healers and sitters to actually accompany someone in a social situation, create safety for someone to explore those, those interactions that you point out. So I just wanted to double click on that. Yeah. And to like triple click upon it as well. Like we're always advocating for research first and foremost, and like all of this discovery is going towards that effort. And it's quadruple clicking upon this is to say that like we, there's no reason to for anyone to seek out like a non-supervised, non-medically screened service, especially like even right now today, someone could get on an airplane and go get like a medically screened, like professionally supported psychedelic service. For some people, that's out of their expense range, but that's immediately available now and will only become increasingly available as all of this comes to unfold. And so it's just like the patience required in that and the awareness of like almost every like negative outcome we ever hear of starts with someone being like, well, I didn't know what I was doing and I thought it would be awesome to blah, blah. And like, it just, and there are people that do know how to work with these things and in clinical settings, like with supervision, there's a incredibly high safety as far as like utilizing these substances. So like just being patient and also like we recommend people out to lots of non-drug induced psychedelic state experiences as well, which also carry their own contraindications, but things like meditation and breath work and mantra and so many other kind of avenues to kind of get in touch with these kinds of altered state experiences that don't carry the legal risk or uh, other kinds of physiological risks. So yeah, there's a lot to explore there, but yeah, I appreciate you bringing that up as well. 
So Justine, we spoke a moment ago that you are kind of beginning your studies. You're getting started in your investigation here. And I'm curious, now that we've listened to this wealth of knowledge, these seven points, what is it that you're most interested in studying and going deeper on and learning about in terms of the intersection? Are you interested in the science of why this is happening, what's actually happening in the brain? Are you interested in supporting protocols for practitioners? Where, where do you see your work going in this field? So I'm, honestly, I'm interested in all of it, but my main thing is to get really robust evidence out there to inform the public about safety and efficacy surrounding these substances, because I feel like it was kind of uh, heavy handed to prohibit all of these things without (laughs) the proper study. And I think that What I'm most interested specifically with LSD, and maybe this can help neurotypical clinicians coming from that kind of perspective, is that there's a general understanding that psychedelics kind of shake stuff up in the brain and it allows stuff to just kind of like marinate and then make new novel connections. And with LSD specifically, it seems to be, it, it, it initiates a, a very unique signaling cascade within the brain. And it could be mimicking what happens when people learn. And so it's very important during these psychedelic states because it's the period where like the brain is very fragile, it's very plastic. And to be able to direct how somebody's thinking to kind of break very strong thinking patterns is, I mean, it's kind of remarkable. And the fact that psychedelics seem to have a very consistent effect across the board, neurotypical, neurodiverse, whatever neurotype there is, there's this feeling of like oneness and unity and community and all of these things. And to have a single substance or to have a class of substance that has that kind of consistent result is, I mean, it's, it's incredible just to be quite honest about it. And I think that from a neurobiology aspect, from what I've learned from my conversations, from my understanding, is at the very heart of it, the neurodiverse brain seems to be making different types of connections. So there's like a if you can think of it in like probabilities. So like a a certain connection, certain neurons will probably wire together. And some people fall out of that normal, typical quote unquote range. And so if you present like two items, two random items, a neurodiverse brain and a neurotypical brain may associate those things differently. And so I believe that's at the heart of the divergence. And the thing is that all of those connections are highly dependent on personal experience. They're dependent on personality. They're dependent on age. They're, it's dependent on everything. And so to be able to like pin down a specific like autistic experience or neurodiverse divergent experience is very hard. But at the core, it's like there there is a, a different type of connection that's being made. And what psychedelics do is they they come in and then they make that connection 
not as probable. The probability of that connection happening is not as likely. And so there's this window where um, there's a, a very important process that seems to be happening in the brain that allows for this breaking of like ruminative thinking, like per- perseverance, things that are associated with affective disorders like de- depression, OCD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And something that we touched on before is trauma specifically. And I had the opportunity of working not only with autistic adults, but also autistic children. And looking at a child and knowing that their brains are connecting certain things differently than mine, and then having all of this kind of peripheral programming, I guess, telling them that they're wrong, telling them that they're thinking wrong, they're feeling wrong, they're behaving wrong, and then growing up into adulthood with that, you know, all of that is, I mean, I can't, I I, I can't imagine what that's like, but I've, I'm empathetic to somebody's experience who had to deal with that. And so being able to heal that part, I think is incredibly important as well. And so it's not just like the autism or the neurodiversity or that part. I think there's a greater, more profound effect that comes with psychedelics. Absolutely. And there's so much that can be learned about the way that society really should be functioning. I think that people who are sensitive to varying degrees show us how we as societies should be more sensitive to each other across the board. And so there's a lot of learning that goes both ways. Um, and, And this comes back to something that has come up on this podcast constantly, is that psychedelic healing is the healing of community, society, and species. Our own individual growth and exploration, certainly, but the healing component of it I really feel, and, and it's borne out in many, many conversations, the healing is what we can see as a society when we come out of our sort of narrow view of how things can and should be. And and so, you know, what we're discussing right now, letting people go their own way and letting them flourish in exactly as their, as their brain is, that's healed. That's what healing is. It isn't to get everyone's brains to work the same way because how much beauty and how much art and how much joy in people's lives would be lost by that kind of conformity. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. So I'd like to move to just specifically looking at psychedelic practitioners at the moment, because this is a totally new field and, you know, people are looking to each other. Okay. How do we do this? How do we support? So we all need to contribute to this wealth of knowledge so that these healers are coming to each individual that they're that they're serving with a really broad awareness. And so, Aaron, I know you've done a lot of experimenting with yourself with these substances, and I know that you've talked to a lot of different people. And so I'm curious, have you seen any kind of potential protocols or methodologies specifically for working with autistic people with the use of psychedelics that would be helpful for psychedelic therapists who may be working with some of these populations? Yeah, I think it's important to recognize that there are subtle accommodations that might need to be considered. I think it's simultaneously in the interest of this sort of like deconditioning of the cultural narrative. It's like, again, going back to the idea of like autistics 
are individuals that are going to be prone to experiencing a lot of the similar benefits of like relief from anxiety or depression or trauma or any of these things. So like in a general sense, uh, you know, that there isn't any like especially like sensitive nature so far as I'm aware. And, I, and I'm speaking mainly again, this gets quickly vastly complicated because again, it's tethered to so many cultural lenses. But like if you take like the DSM's current iteration of autism spectrum, there's like three levels that are like termed towards how much assistance does this individual need, like level one assistance, level two, level three. And I would say in a general sense, I'm generally hearing from individuals who most of them weren't diagnosed within this last little narrow window of time where this diagnosis was even in existence. But most of them would fall into like the level one, level two, just anecdotally. Again, like I'm not a clinician, but I say that because in a general sense, like a lot of, you know, the most like impactful or most challenging aspects of autism spectrum, I'm still not myself entirely sure of how that overlap would look like. You can look back at those studies from the 60s. Those are highly problematic in terms of like individuals who are like very like low communication whatsoever. That's like a whole other kind of branch of this. So speaking more through the lens of like improving like the wellness potentially of like an autistic person or enhancing their self-understandings, or, or still also dealing with those depressive or anxious or traumatizing kind of components. You know, I think one thing that I emphasized in my book and one thing that I'm curious to explore in the future would be how we can administer these kinds of services or supports in a, in a more social context. I think you see it in a lot of retreat models now that individuals kind of have like a private space for a session, but there's always kind of a place for like communion or like there's like a dinner at the end of the day where people can discuss and like make sense of these things. And like having other people who are freshly out of these experiences can be like very helpful to someone who's like, did you, did that happen with you too? Like, did, wow, what about this? Oh, it didn't happen for you. Maybe that's like a unique thing for me. Like there's these ways that suddenly people can start to like make a map of like what their map looks like internally. So I think in an ideal setting and presently, I don't talk to HIPAA about this, how they're developing what this would ever look like, but having more of like a social component, having like a support partner present for these sessions, I think it would be like much more ideal for myself. I'm not, I've never had a session with just like a psychotherapist and me being administered a substance. And to be honest, that sounds like I feel like I would go into their psyche and I'd be like, weird, what am I doing in your head? Like that would get weird for me, I think, um, a little bit. I found like a lot of my work I was doing like alone, which again is not advisable, but it created like a container where like the energies of other persons like weren't like kind of in my field. So I could sort of process certain things. Have you sat in an environment that was more the retreat model, say like an ayahuasca ceremony or or a mushroom retreat kind of thing. Have you been in the environment that you've just described? I've been in group settings, which again is uh, therapeutic, but not in like a formal context, but being more like in just an informal group and being able to like co-experience these experiences, kind of go through the full experience together, make sense of it together, having like those comforts, those foods, like musical instruments, like fire, communion, all these kinds of, you know, like we sort of create like incidental ceremony just because like it just becomes like a, a process of how we work with these things. Like everything is ceremony going to the bar is ceremony, having a wedding, like any, any process is like, it's ingrained already at just some level. And so, you know, that's where 
it's enticing to sort of look at what's immediately available from this new medicalization model. And I do still think, again, that like the adjunct to psychotherapy is a wonderful service for any person of any neurotype. I am interested in this like sort of frontier of, you know, that sort of retreat model or, you know, how can we give people more of like a spaciousness so that it's like you don't have to get everything out of like this four hour session because that can be really like pressured and loaded for certain people, but just kind of creating almost like a, a property where people could kind of go and stay for like a week or two weeks, have like a sort of free range to like work within a certain boundary line of being like, I'll work with this much of a substance. I'll have like peripheral support as needed, but like, it's like almost like a peer supported kind of experience. Cause again, like more than the substances themselves, a lot of what I'm interested in and what I, a lot, what I feel is at the core of any depressed person is like that absence of connection. And so if you foster an environment where connection is like naturally like flourishing already, and then you introduce like substances that can further connect individuals, like it, it, it harkens back to, I remember I was with an individual some years ago and they were like working through their own depressive issues and they were like seeing their own therapists. And we talked about that some, sometimes here and there, as we were like kind of going into like having this experience together. And then I remember like the day of, like after the whole day was done and they kind of like wandered throughout the, like the flower fields and all this stuff They came back. And I was like, do you think you got to the bottom of like your trauma or your sadness? They're like, no, but I had an awesome day. What a great day. It's great to be alive. Like that, that, that then set them on a course to be like, why is it worth doing the work to work through this stuff? Oh, because like life is wonderful. Like sometimes people just need that moment of engagement. And that's not always necessarily going to come always from like uh, eye blinds and music and a couch in like a therapist's office kind of setting. Like, and I think that that's still very much like the safer pathway for the time being. But I think that, you know, if we kind of entrust something as volatile as like alcohol into like a corner store for people to pick up and make whatever ritual they make of it, I think we could mature as a society to be able to utilize something like psilocybin in like a responsible way with just like relying on the wisdom of like peers and others. And we can always have experts, but nonetheless, like anyone who's taken a psychedelic that wasn't in a legal context probably had someone who cared enough to help them be able to navigate that. Like no one's just like, here you go, figure it out. Like that's not like anyone who's gone through this experience knows the necessity of like further helping others in the same, again, I'm not trying to draw the exact parallel but it's like someone's older sibling is like this is a beer don't drink too many of them like there's like there's like this happens culturally already it's just like some things are normatized some things aren't so i feel like a future model i would love to see like a retreat kind of center like that where there's more of a free form like because i think it again to take that pressure and to heighten that accommodation like someone's like oh it's day two i need another day to settle in and then i think i'll have like a a light session that day like that someone could kind of like attune their experience and still benefit from just the community aspect of the experience i think would be interesting to me well and you know that actually touches back to something that we were talking about earlier which is about being empowered to trust your own instincts Maybe empowered is even the wrong word, but being in an environment where the people around you are facilitating your choices, your instincts, your desires, and that strengthening your connection with that is part of the healing process. You know, like if if you're going into a clinical setting, you have this this experience with this psychedelic. It's a short experience. 
I mean, it's a short experience of therapy because of just people's time and that sort of thing. That's definitely not as valuable as the spaciousness of a retreat where you can choose where you want to be. You can choose, you can kind of take a step back. And I think that that, again, makes a lot of sense as part of the healing process. And I do know of some folks who are starting to do ketamine therapy in the context of a more ceremonial setting. And it actually makes sense financially to bring in peer support and more of a ceremony model because if you can get a group of people who are medically supervised and and are being supported and have the right ratio of professional support, but there's also peer support, then the that first wave of integration that's so important you know, over a weekend is done in community, that's actually much more cost effective than to be paying, you know, an army of therapists to do it. Yeah. So yeah. it makes and a lot of sense. And it's and it's further therapeutic for an individual to be able to support someone who's coming yeah. out of it as well. Like that, I mean, that's the whole basis for our Sunday group is just that like more than people who are like, hey, I need help. They're also like, they don't realize it maybe always, but they're like, I need to be helpful. And here's a space where I can be. And that becomes like a further driver of meaning and purpose and all these things. Yeah, yeah let's, let's talk about that space a little bit. Justine, I know that you're taking part in that. Are there other folks who don't, primarily identify in this way who are able to take part in these sessions and connect with them? I'm asking this because say um, there's a psychedelic therapist who's listening to this podcast. They want to be working, they are potentially working with an autistic person. Would it be possible for them to drop in on one of these sessions and and get to know this community? Or are there other sort of ways that they can be a part of, of community healing as a therapist themselves? Yeah, I think having leaving an open invitation for everybody is very important to us and having this conversation where we're bridging gaps in knowledge and like just interpersonal gaps, <laughs> um, especially as a researcher, as a scientist going into psychedelic research of all things and then combining that with autism which is like a broad spectrum and then trying to meld those together it's like what am i even studying and i have found that these personal experiences listening to individual experiences is like gold because all the other psychedelic studies it's really hard to quantify like put a number on how amazing you feel or how much better you were than like yesterday or like 10 years from now, like trying to quantify that data is almost impossible. But to have it relayed to me through personal experience, through revelations, through how their life has changed day to day, like the things that used to be easier for me, the things that I was able to do that I never could have imagined. Those kinds of experiences are not only profoundly inspirational, like we touched on, like for the clinician, but it gives a sense of how unique each person is and how much the guide or the therapist clinician has to rely on the patient doing a lot of the healing and being able to hold that space and being like kind of an empty container. And do it being like a gentle guide because a lot of these people are coming into this experience like oh my kids everything and so they're highly suggestible and to especially for a neurodiverse person or autistic person who's uh, have it they 
may not have been able to develop the sense of self or the sense of confidence to know exactly what might be the best decision or what might be the best place to go or what who might be the best person to talk to it, it, during these times like those types of things i think are very important from things that have been shared with me specifically i think some people who have gone through traditional talk therapy who have gone through traditional you know those kind of avenues they take on a lot of things that are laid on them by the clinician. And so when this individual, when the patient is in a highly suggestible state, the practitioner has to be extremely on guard as far as what they're telling them rather than what they're asking them. And so I think that's an important point too. And I'm, you know, all clinicians, they kind of know that intuitively, but especially for somebody in this state of mind that can, once they come out of the psychedelic state, this could become part of a repetitious pattern as well. And so you want to be able to direct that pattern of thinking in the most positive way for the individual as possible. Yeah. And to double up on just the point about having, you know, an open space as far as our Sunday group goes, you know, in a general sense, the conversation is sort of like occupied by neurodivergent voices, but that conversation is like encouraged to not only be like, you know, listened and understood because for a lot of us, these voices are very much underrepresented anyhow. And so for a lot of us, we're happy to be able to be heard. But simultaneously, like we're I'm personally also drawn to the notion that like, you know, neurodiversity really becomes an appealing paradigm when a supposedly neurotypical person can understand how neurodiversity could benefit their existence or others within their spaces. And it's not immediately clear when you just like throw a new word out there. But just this idea of like, how can anyone of any sort come into an awareness of like, I have a very particular way and how can I ask for that accommodation in my life and how can I understand other people's other particular needs like and how can I harmonize better? I mean, I've had, in, we have individuals sometimes will show up and be like, I'm not, I'm not diagnosed as anything. Am I okay to be here? We're like, that's totally fine. They're like, it's just like, everyone's so accepting here. I like it here. I'm like, yeah, it's cool. You can stay. It's fine. Like there's like, there's that level of it too. Like that we don't want to be, become the very thing that we felt sort of like victimized by and be like, no, this is only for like one subgroup of people, like everyone else not welcomed here. Like we ha we want to kind of create that cross dialogue. And I don't know, people can ask dumb questions and anything is fine. <laughs> what, what is the name of the Sunday group? And we'll link that in the show notes. And in part, I think this would be really helpful to share for people who have autistic family members who would notice this podcast and be like, oh, I wonder if this might be helpful for my brother or for my, my father or, or whomever. And for practitioners as well, I think that being open to people uh, of goodwill who understand that the space is meant for neurodivergent people to speak and share. For people who want to come into that space, I think it, it's it's an extraordinary gift. So what is the name of the Sunday group? And yeah, we'll link that in the show notes. Yeah, so we're just we, we're known as the Autistic Psychedelic Community, and our website is autisticpsychedelic.com. And 
from there you can learn all about like our organization, like our mission, information about the Zoom meetings, and you can even pre-order that uh, book that's coming out with stories from members of our community who are reflecting about psychedelic experiences. And we anticipate with that book and with all this other, I don't know, it just we're, seems like we're on like a podcast every day now or something. Uh, we anticipate that that community will grow in a positive way and we'll get more like meaningful new intersections of like persons colliding. And, you know, we're, we're only a little under a year into this, but for us, it's just like, as you can tell from this whole conversation, like we barely even got below like the headline level of like how significant any one of those small little introductions of possible new treatment option might look like or new avenue of care. And like any one of those, it's like an entire industry's worth of stuff underneath any of those little things. And we're just like beginning it all like right now. So it's it's a journey and we'd welcome people through. And autisticpsychedelic.com is, is the site. Is there anyone else who's working in this space that you're aware of? Well, we there's one other support group, and that's through the Portland Psychedelic Society. They have a psychedelics and autism meetup through like a mutual friend of our community who runs that meeting for them. As far as like direct uh, services, I've only been reached out to by individuals who are working with things like cannabis or CBD in the context of certain kinds of approaches and in that um, I'm really intrigued by the work that's going on related to interoception training because there's like certain schools of thought related to like how to coach people on embodiment essentially like a, a sort of like hold an ice cube that's cold okay now graduate to like further and further levels and so the work around interoception training I'm fascinated by especially because like that might just be if the the psychedelic component same with our group like it's it's there, but it's like not, it's not the only thing that comes through with all of this, but the interoception training stuff. And then there's one, like there's one, I believe there's one psychedelic organization currently that's in like animal model level testing for potential applications for uh, psilocybin in the context of autism spectrum. But that's as far as I'm aware, there's only one present company that's doing that. And I don't, I don't know. It's, I imagine it's from our conversations with many other persons, it's like, it's going to have to come through the doorway of like uh, what's referred to in like the medical world as like healthy, normal populations validating first. And then these like further kind of like subpopulation approaches coming later. But what's interesting is that some of these things that we're like kind of noticing as trends might not show up as like dramatic benefits for general populations versus autistics. That's something I'm like fascinated in this idea that like, Someone who normally has a pretty good sense of how they feel, feeling a little bit more would be like, well, that's cool. I felt more. But someone who like has no clue how they feel ever and then being like, guys, I have feelings. I can like notice stuff. Like that's a huge breakthrough. And so like, how can we kind of like detect that, validate that? But if we have to go over the hurdle of like the general population studies first, like will that show as strongly? And so that's why we're going straight to the anecdotal because it's going to take a long, long time and probably a lot of capital to get any of this anywhere noticeable in like a research sense. And and so that collection of stories, this anecdotal tome of different experiences of autistic people with psychedelics, what will that be called? When should we look out for that book? Yeah, that's just called Autistic Psychedelic. It's just the book. It's sort of like our, it's just telling the story of everything that happened since the last book for myself. My little introduction is just like what happened from that book till now. And then the rest is just in like directly quoted like emails, messages that I got with people's permission to republish 
they're being published like anonymously. There's still way too much legal tape to navigate all of that. So it's mainly uh, anonymous tellings. And then I also, through our site, we had like a questionnaire kind of survey posted. And so over the course of 2020, people submitted their responses as far as like, you know, their, their most meaningful experience, what they felt was like their benefits of those experiences, how they reflect on that now, what they feel is next for them. And we also invited people who ever wanted to, they could write up to 500 words about this t- the topic of like, what would you like the world to know about psychedelics as an autistic or as a neurodivergent person? So really it's just amplifying the voices we've already heard just because from where I'm sitting, I'm like, this is very obviously important. But most rooms I walk into, people are like, I don't know anything about this. <laughs> and so like, how can we like, create that to me like it's really like a story told through my inbox basically of like wow 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 that person said wow 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 it's just like perpetually like more and more evidence coming through to me and me trying to be like guys look i witnessed a lot of people who witnessed the thing witnessed this and like that's that's where it is and that's the whole point of the book and to push myself a little further to the back because i'm tired of talking about my one story because it's not the only and there's so many other interesting avenues to explore and so all these other people are opening up those new avenues of exploration. And so that's what the kind of purpose of the book is. So we're coming to the end of our time together. Um, I am endlessly fascinated. And so we might be needing to do a round two of this conversation. The way that this podcast always ends is that I give my guests the opportunity to speak directly to psychedelic practitioners and healers. These are people who are doing their very best to do just as as you described previously, to clear their vessel so that they can be an open channel to support people. And the psychedelic practitioners that I know are are really devoted to this work. So I just wanted to give you both uh, a moment to speak directly to psychedelic therapists and healers. Sure. Um, Well, first I'd just like to say to this general amorphous group of people who are doing this work and like first thank you i extend gratitude from a place that probably a lot of you who are doing this work are already aware of that certain kinds of gratitude aren't even really needed because it's so like obvious why this work uh, continues and you know if you're listening to what we've talked about today and you're interested in learning about it i try to make myself as much of an open book as I can be about it. You know, we're really quite protective of our community here. We really want to kind of preserve the integrity and respect of every everything that we're doing with this initiative. And that said, you know, anyone who wants to come and have like respectful conversations with us, we're here to talk about anything. It's my life's work personally to try to figure out a pathway for like equitable access for individuals uh, that are navigating neurodivergent existence and who could potentially benefit from some of these tools. So that's my life's work. So if anyone is interested in, I don't know, somehow helping with that journey or understanding things for themselves that can help them kind of push that sort of level of care to others in a similar way, like I'm here for any and all sort of collaboration or discussions of any sort. So that's my piece and I pass it off to Justine. Yeah, I also extend massive gratitude to everybody working in this space i know how like just for me personally how incredibly frustrating like all the red tape can be sometimes but coming from a more i guess like neurotypical perspective coming into these spaces i realized 
a lot of assumptions that I had, like preconceived notions about certain conditions or about certain, you know, neurotypes that I didn't even realize that I held until I actually talked to people. And specific things like language choice. I didn't even realize like some of the words that I'm using are really loaded. And to be really aware of saying exactly what you mean is very important. And also to be able to kind of appreciate the fact that sometimes from my personal experience, these individuals have haven't had anybody listen to them ever. And what I've come to realize is that sometimes they don't even know uh, what they can talk about, like what is appropriate. And they question everything that comes out of their mouth. And it's being able to provide a safe and loving environment for them to just blossom, I think is, is really important. And so... Yeah, empty vessel. <laughs> well, I think that the work that you're both doing is simply incredible. Aaron, your book was fascinating. It was a pleasure to read. I just want to I want to end cuz I I have a note here that just says great writing. <laughs> so, I'm just going to read this. This is from your book Autism on Acid. This is prior to encountering LSD in the book. But all too often my maps and routines failed to serve me outing me as a tone-deaf socializer, well-versed in the recommended chord progressions, but woefully incapable of hearing the backing rhythm, much less harmonizing with other instrumentalists in the jam sessions of social interactions. And it seems that you have found, through your experimentation with psychedelics, an ability to play much more joyfully and in a much more complex way than you previously had. And that's an incredible example to set for others. And I'm just, I'm, I'm honored to have this time talking with you both, grateful for the work that you're both doing and, and really, yeah, just really happy that we get to share this widely with people. And I hope that the, you listening at home learned a lot and felt a lot more inspired after this conversation. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for this time here. It's been really wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast. If you enjoyed this show, please join the Psychedelic Therapy Facebook group to talk about it. You can also share it with your friends or leave a review on iTunes so more people can discover the show. The Psychedelic Therapy Podcast is presented by Maya, a platform designed to help psychedelic therapists manage and measure client journeys. You can head to mayahealth.com to learn more. The show is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide mental health or medical advice. Thanks for listening.